2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 301 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Itter and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez, Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin on the line in San Jose, California. Hello. Finally got around to making a screen for the masks, and um, I got a little over-eager over with the exposure I thought you know I tried like 17 minute exposure on the emulsion to to burn the the stencil into the screen right and um, so when I went to make the real one I thought well let me try 20 minutes and then because I figured I'd kind of underexposed the first attempt and the first attempt was like a test screen and then I thought well I'm in the middle of the 20 minutes I'm like you know maybe I'll go another 10 minutes on top of that and I ended up overexposing the thing and it took me forever to blow it out and get the stencil made right so and then when I went to print it it was less than ideal, so we're going to take another shot at it <laughs> to make another screen. But I posted a video up on Twitter of a uh, time-lapse of me printing a couple of them. Very exciting. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so we're just dig in. We got some fact-check from last week. Um, I had said on the show that Command-Shift-O was... For um, finding a file in the Project Navigator, one of my favorite keyboard commands on uh, for Xcode. But um, Command Shift O for those of you yelling at your phones is Quick Open in Xcode. Like when you do Command Shift O, you get a sort of like a, what's like what's that search thing we get on the desktop uh, when you do Command Spacebar, um, like a Safari. What do you call it, Sherlock? Right. That's what I'm looking for. So it's kind of like that. You get like a lozenge, and you get to type in some words or uh, letters, and and it starts to show you like sort of in that Ajaxy kind of style uh, a bunch of quick hits. So you can quickly open files um, that way. I'm sure I don't know if you guys do that or not all day long or not. I usually I think, don't do don't that,
3: but but everyone I know does. I just never got in the habit yeah. of using. But uh, at least for the quick. Yeah, open me neither. Or, yeah,
2: me neither. I hard to use that one. But but that said, when I'm debugging something and I'm following a uh, you know tracing through uh, debugging and walking through. The the code or whatever, going from breakpoint to whatever. Um, I'll sometimes land on a, on a file. I'm like, oh, where does this file live? Right. And so I use the command shift J, which which shows it in the project navigator, which is what mm. up until last week was my favorite keyboard command. But last week I mentioned, I think, on the show that uh, I had um, learned control, command, and R, which is to run without building. I don't know, but you guys these days build times are like crazy. Um, and sometimes you just want to run the app and, and debug it, right? So what I found is that uh, I can do control, command, R, and um, then I can, you know, quickly like load up a, a simulator or load up a, a phone with uh, with the code and then step through it because it's still, you're still, I mean, like, I mean, what's the point of doing command, R all the time to get a new build if you, all you do want, want to do is run and debug it, right? So yeah, it's like instantaneous. It just immediately starts installing the, the build, the previous build onto your phone, provided you've got a build, of course, right? Or you've already built the code at least once. Um, then it just build, installs it on your on your device, and off you go. You're off to the races. So it's really handy for debugging. So I'm I think that's now my new favorite keyboard command. Nice. <laughs> at least I used it many times.
3: I found a little trick too this week. Uh, should have been sort of obvious, I guess, but they always are until you realize what they are. Uh, I was complaining last week or or commenting last week about how when you have a development pod and you up you make a change in the pod. Uh, the yeah. the top level app doesn't pick up the change unless you do a clean build. Where it used to with the old build system, and then when they introduced the new build system, it stopped working. So it was a real problem. Anytime you're in a development pod and you edit something, it takes forever. Well, there's sort of an obvious solution uh, that I wish I had thought of a long time ago. You just go up into your managed schemes, pull down, and it lists all of your pods in that managed uh, managed schemes oh, with, a, nice, with a little yeah. empty checkbox. So you just check hmm. the one you care about, and then a scheme will show up for your pod in your in that same pull down with all of your targets. So nice. so if you make a change in a pod, it's still a two step thing. You have to change to the change your scheme to that pod build, and then change back to your main target and then build and run. But it's way faster than cleaning the whole thing and, and rerunning. Increased my productivity immensely. Yeah, don't know why I never thought of that before, but it was always right there. But uh, but now I have, so I'm pretty happy about
2: that. Yeah, before we used to do before we we would uh, maybe I me may remember this too, but before we used to run CocoaPods and stuff like that, if, if you, somebody would create a framework and you wanted to run it in your app, you kind of dragged the, the whole project into the app. Do you remember doing that? And you always had to do a build of that first before you could, or sometimes it would, it sure. would sort of build, Xcode would smart enough to build the whole thing, but sim, sort of a similar kind of situation, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. You could always set it as a dependency in your build settings, yeah. you? or build phases, or wherever that is, build phases. I suppose, the and I
2: think that's how CocoaPods works. It kind of yeah. looks for the latest yep. cached version, right, or
1: I do think it got smarter over time because I I do remember like Xcode. era, maybe it would do the right thing. Maybe it wouldn't. And mm. the uh, what did you say before, Tim? The the mentor or guru who was teaching you would say, "Go go Sensei. change the build so that it, uh, you know, it, the, the target so that you build the dependency first, and then go build the main project." I remember being taught that, and I I don't re- recall having to do that after a certain amount of time. I don't know which Xcode version it was that got better about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We used to we used to have before news news what it called newsstand came along. We used to have an app that. We would load up. Uh, we would have like a, a document template, or like a like a magazine, if you will, of HTML files and CSS and Java and stuff like that, and images. And uh, it was imported into the project as a folder, not necessarily. Like it would be like a blue folder instead of a yellow folder. And um, we used to drop in change. We customer would send us changes, and we would throw them into these blue folders, and and theoretically update the build. Right. And um, what would happen would be that you would make a change in in these documents, and you. would would run and it wouldn't it wouldn't like pick up the change and we'd be like scratching our head and pulling our hair out and that's where we got into the habit of well let's let's do a clean but you know back in those days and this is, this is early you know um xcode 3xcode four days too but it, yeah it has gotten better over time I think it kind of picks up dependencies a bit better but it's a handy tip mark off we'll the we'll yeah. sort of yeah.
3: yeah this this one you know cocoa pods is is quite good at picking up the dependencies it, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't mark things as dirty correctly when right. you change yeah. them yeah for some crazy reason. So these
2: are local pods though. You're this you're saying last week this is like a developer
3: developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pod. So this is this is uh, this is kind of a special case, I guess. It's it's when you have internal pods that you are developing and you're using them as as libraries in your main project, but then you want to edit something in that in that development pod. So so typically in, in a pod file, instead of referring to just, uh, you know, some external location, you can set it, you can use the colon path command, if it's called a command, uh, to point to a local, a path on your local file system. And then your pot, your, that pod shows up not in the main pods folder, but it shows up in a development pods folder. And those are all editable. You edit whatever you want. Right. But, but when you, when you do that, as I was saying, it, it doesn't seem to up the changes, unless you do a full clean of everything, which is crazy because then you have to clean, you have to rebuild all of your pods, which takes forever. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, there's also the, the pod repo update, which you sometimes can do to, sure. to, like, with remote pods to sort of update the cache, right? Because it doesn't actually pull the pods down every time, it, it wants to run them from a local cache if we could find one. So, yeah, yeah, we, we get burned by that all the time.
3: Yeah, yeah, that happens. Yep. But, yeah,
2: all right, well, it looks like we do have some jc here, so I'm going to ask Jaime. What the heck is that about?
1: Yeah, this one is from uh, Peeking Down the Rabbit Hole at Harmonic Lattice. It tells us that uh, Thomas Shuren, writing in the Inside PS PDF Kit blog on May 26th, apparently, links to this art Wikipedia article. I think both deserve to be added to your discussion queue. And sunk cost applies to far more than just programming. There's a link to the mm-hmm. Wikipedia article on sunk cost.
2: The Concord fallacy, apparently, as well.
1: I've never heard it called I that. That's it. that's interesting. I wonder well, if that's like it says that like in, a... the side, in the image on the side, right? Yeah, no, but I mean, I believe it because I read it here and I'm like, all right, maybe that's like a European thing, but I've, I've literally never heard that myself. So that's 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 news to me from a, a cultural exchange standpoint. So what does sunk cost mean? What's, what's the gist?
2: So,
3: so basically it means that when you're trying to make a decision on whether you should invest more in something, you kind of can't use the fact that you've already put it in a lot of money as part of your decision. You really need to make the decision on okay, if I put in this amount of money now, what's the return that's going to get me? And mm-hmm. and the reason it's a fallacy is people tend to think, well, I already put in, you know, thousands of dollars into this if I put in a few more hundred, then maybe I'll, maybe I'll get my money back. But, but that shouldn't be your... You
2: just described my entire life, man.
3: (laughs) You know, the the classic example that I always think of is I've been playing a lot of online poker while we're here in the uh, pandemic, you know, alternate reality, dystopian alternate reality that we're all living in right now. And, and this is a very common thing with poker. When you're in a poker hand, there's many rounds of betting and, and a lot of time it's very, a lot of times it's very easy to fall into a trap, especially beginners fall into the trap of i've already put in so much money into this hand i can't fold now yeah maybe. i better put in more right even though the odds tell you that, that you're beat you know and you should just get out and not not risk any more money but people do it all the time they just keep putting more and more in so your decision should only be based on if i put in x amount of dollars right now what's my return going to be regardless of how much you've already put in because that doesn't really come into it that doesn't the amount you've already put in uh, of, of course of of course the money you put in might affect the outcome, but, but you should have already factored that into what your calculation of the outcome is going to be for the, the amount of more money that you're going to in. Right.
2: Right. Hmm. It's interesting. I never, I never want to play poker because the problem for me is I, I'm sure you as an experienced player know that at a certain point in time, there's, there's only so many combinations that can actually win like in the middle of a game kind of thing. Yeah, Cause you've seen those cards as it were. Um, yeah, I have, I've no, frame of reference for that. Well, that's, that's, poker that's purely
3: <laughs> practice. That just purely comes with yeah, practice. Yeah,
2: yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess it's the same thing with, like, I'm pretty good at cribbage, because you know, I was taught by some pretty good players, ex-father-in-laws and stuff. And um, they, you know, so you, I know what you mean. You, you kind of get, you get used to what is expected to happen, right? I guess just, you know, through playing enough times and being able to read what's going on, right? So. Hmm.
3: Yeah. And that's, and that's the real game of poker. People think poker is kind of a game. Gambling game, which yeah. you know it, it can be, but the the real game of poker is figuring out what are the odds of winning this hand, and then betting the right amount such that if over the long term, if that same hand came out came up, you know, thousands of times, are you making the right move? So statistically, over time, you win more than you lose on that exact hand. And if you do that for if you do that for every possible hand, then you can you always come out ahead over time. You can't ever predict what's going to happen in any given hand. And, you know, there's no shame in folding. You know, there's no shame in getting beat in a hand. It's all about making the right move that statistically over the long term pays off. That's the right, real game right. poker. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, my my problem with sunk costs is like I, I've been buying the same lottery ticket numbers for 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. And I play this twice a week now because they, they increase the number of times the game's played. And because I've been playing, it's one of these things where I know it's like one trillion to one is in terms of being able to win this particular lottery but since i've been playing the same numbers for 25 years my brain tells me i can't possibly not play anymore because the minute i'm always afraid that the minute i stop playing the numbers will land right right
3: but of course that's false (laughs) No, because right, every single time and...
2: there's a lottery, it's still one trillion to one. Exactly. Right, no yeah, what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They're
1: independent yeah. events from a probability yeah. standpoint. Yeah. True. True. Yeah.
3: And and, and again, going back yeah, to they're... poker, the difference is that in poker, there are certain hands where you might have a seventy percent chance of winning, and other hands you, you right. might have a twenty percent chance of winning, and in other hands you might have a zero percent chance of winning. So you want to bet more on the on the hands that you that you have a seventy percent chance of winning.
2: Right. But but there's also a little bit of the game of chicken too, right? Like when you get down to, who's yeah. going to fold. First kind of thing. You're
3: right. There, there is yeah. There's a whole nother level of the game, which is the has nothing to do with the cards. It's all about playing the the, the other player and figuring out you know based on patterns that you've observed and in how they like to play and um, oh, do they right. always okay. do the same thing mm-hmm. in the same situation or do they have some physical tells you know do they always you know shake their hand when they're when they have a, a good hand or something like that? It's actually true. You know, people think you know you, if you watch someone's hands often when you're playing and if you see them shaking. People often interpret that as, oh, they're nervous. They must have a bad hand. Right. But right. it's actually the opposite. Usually, it's not the same with everyone, of course, but usually it's the opposite. If someone's hand is shaking, it's because they're excited, because they have a really good hand. Right. Little uh-huh. tip there next time you play poker. <laughs> of course, no guarantees, doesn't work with anyone. A real po- a real good pro poker player might be shaking his hand just to make you think they have a a, a good hand when they yeah, up. Right. Who knows?
2: Yeah. Right, right. Eh, well, you know, more than just, go just go.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, tying it yeah. to other things that people might have heard sunk cost used before, probably two different examples that come to mind beyond the the gambling one that we covered here is uh, usually civic or government projects of some sort where people will say, hey, but well, we've already spent you know $10 million on this project. If we just spent a little bit more, it could be successful. And that's not often the case and people are just trying to justify based on oh my gosh, we spent all this money and we're going to get nothing out of it. Right. Um, and very very similarly, projects at work might be, well, if we just spent, you know, three more months on this rewrite, you know, it'll be good and we'll, we'll reach the Holy Land. It's like, well, maybe not. It sounds like you're justifying like, oh my gosh, we spent six months on this so far and we were supposed to be done already. So those, those might be the areas where people have heard the the term sunk cost, or you might have experienced it.
3: Yeah. But it really is kind of the same concept. It's, it's still, you're at this point in time, how much more return will this, this investment get me? It's all about that. If, if, right. if okay. putting in more money increases the chance of you getting more money back, then yeah, you should do it. If, if putting in more money doesn't increase, don't do it.
2: Yeah. But if the horse is dead and you want to keep flogging it, right?
3: Right. Exactly. Then <laughs> like- there's no chance. Of
2: getting more, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's a quick one that we've been talking about for the last couple of months, and that is the closing of all the retail store operations around the world. Um, and uh, this quick story from the Loop came out on Friday that uh, Apple is has reopened half of the stores that uh, they had closed. Obviously, so um, of the 510 Apple stores around the world, uh, 256 of them have apparently opened, uh, notwithstanding the current weekend melee. Um, I think some of them got closed again. But uh, yeah, so I guess I guess, and this is only to the uh, the stores that are um, you know have street access. Like I'm I'm thinking of the one in Palo Alto, or maybe the one at Union Square in San Francisco, because I know those two have a have a street entrance. Huh. Um, I, I went by one of our malls here. Um, I know our big Eaton Center downtown is still boarded up and closed. And um, the I went by uh, another place in Burlington, which most of our Apple stores here in Toronto area are all within a mall, and all of our our shopping malls are still closed for obvious reasons, but yeah. So have you guys seen any open stores around you guys? Or
3: I have, but stores? I was looking at the listing and, and there was one down in a, in a city called Los Gatos, which is kind of an upscale little town south of where I am, south of San Jose. That one's not open, even though it does have street access. I was kind of surprised by that. Hmm. Hmm. But of course, the big one, well, it's not the store itself isn't that big, but it's in a it's in a very high traffic mall, the, the Westfield Valley Fair Mall, which is right around the corner. That one uh, is not open either. Yeah,
2: right, right. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I've got pictures of uh, the Apple employees here. Um, yeah, she's posted here on, on I guess, on Instagram, uh, pictures of the store with people practicing safe distancing and masks and all bit. So that's cool. So at least we're seeing some signs of life. I, I To be honest with you, I still personally feel it's too early, but, you know, what do I know? Yep. All right. Um, yeah, so let's talk about this developer survey that came out, uh, the 2020 Stack Overflow Development Survey. I think we talk about this every year. Um, just came out. Uh, obviously, people who are on Stack Overflow are the ones, you know, um, doing the survey, I can't remember if I if I entered it this year or not. Um Yeah, so of 65,000 developers, which is still a drop in the bucket when it comes to the number of developers that could possibly be out there, um, they have all gone through and put some some numbers to this. So, you know, obviously things like average age of a developer, you know, obviously between 29 and 35 seems to be the big, I guess 20 to 35 is sort of the big area. The people in my area, my age range is, I'm almost down to 1.1% in terms of how many people of my age developing still. Uh, a lot of developers in the in, in United States, United Kingdom and Canada, Canada, Netherlands, Germany, France. so seem to be the top. Brazil, Poland, and India, of course. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Have you guys got anything specific you want to talk about these?
3: Uh, yeah, I wasn't too surprised today? by really anything here. I mean, it's it's pretty much the same as it's mm-hmm. been for a while. I was a little bit surprised, although maybe I shouldn't have been, at uh, how. The iOS or the Apple languages have dropped uh, in popularity. Mm-hmm. There, it wasn't too long ago. It was only like four or five years ago when Swift was kind of number yeah. one, right? Um, yeah. Different yeah. poll, That's obviously. True, yeah. But but now it's pretty far down the list. I mean, it's way below C++ and C and Go even. Kind of scratch. Wow, down to 6%. Yeah, yeah. it's below Kotlin. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think we're strange.
1: seeing some things here. So I've said for a very long time that JavaScript is the language of the people, right? It's the <laughs> easiest one to get into in terms of obstacles or barriers to entry, um, if you have a computing device of any sort, it's got some sort of browser, some sort of text editing mechanism, and you can you can program. That's quite different than um, trying to do something with with Swift. Right? There's there's quite a bit more right. machinery that you have, so it just sort of naturally limits the the common usage. So that that definitely makes sense. Uh, what is interesting is comparing the common usage, which your point, it's like you know JavaScript, Python. Python, Java, C Sharp is is rising, um, and and some other things like uh, Go and Kotlin have, have been way up there. Um, notably, Rust is not on the list of commonly used. But now, when you right. switch the the vector to say, all right, well, let's take a look at you know most loved, and, and Rust is really well loved. It's number Where one. Rust there. is
3: on the list though.
1: Uh, was it? 4.8%. it? Oh, sorry, sorry, towards it was the like, bottom. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. you're right. It is towards the bottom. I missed it. Yeah. But
3: it, it's, still ahead of Objective C. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Still I of Objective-C. Not not super far behind Swift in usage. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of love, Rust gets a lot of love. And Swift starts showing up a lot more here, right? It's mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. instead of toward the yeah, bottom the third or 20, it's in the top half.
3: What is maybe. Julia? I've never heard of Julia.
1: Neither have I. Yep. The name is familiar. I'd have to look it up. Hmm. Um, like a machine learning, data oh, science maybe. sort of
2: thing, I'm thinking. Could be. Yeah, Kotlin, Go, and, and Python are, pre- are up. They're pretty high, you know, within the top five anyway, right? So...
1: Look at the love for Dart. That that tells me...
2: Maybe the five guys who are writing Rust are the only ones who actually enjoy their job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when you have low usage of something, like, you know, low usage of Rust, you're going to see, I think, a lot of love. Um, assuming it's not like, you know, visual basic or something that, you know, very little usage, but people sort of hate using it. They use it because they have to. I think things that you, you don't have to use, that you're going out of everywhere to use, you're going to be more enthusiastic about it. So I think that's why rust gets a lot of love and the other thing i see here is that dart is well loved um and that is something that we can infer that that almost certainly has to do with google flutter usage so people must oh, okay. just really like the experience of using the dart programming language to program for flutter because dart has been around for a while it never really took off in typescript arguably took all of the here's the love for something that is like javascript but better uh you know fixing the flaws right. um but i think the the resurgence of Dart in, in, the, in the now modern era, the 2020 era, tells me that it, it must be related to Flutter. People trying to do uh, huh. cross-platform programming.
2: Yeah. Interesting for the, the ones that developers want to learn next, Python's still way up there um, at 30%. 30% is like the largest thing. People want to learn Go.
3: I would say Python is probably, or maybe JavaScript as well, but Python is, is really the, the most bang for your buck language. If you just learn a little bit of Python, right. you can do a lot with it and get get by in a lot of different cases. So so I'm not surprised that people wanna learn it because it's 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 really useful.
2: Right. And you look at the, the platforms for developers down a little further down, iOS is sort of in the middle there. Um, Raspberry Pi, Google Cloud, Linux, Kubernetes, Docker, AWS. Are sort of rounding up the top there. A lot of Windows users out there still, right? Mm-hmm. Almost fifty
3: percent. Slack apps and integrations mm-hmm. is fifty-one percent. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And yeah, no JS is
2: up high, but that, is that because of the the JavaScript relationship there? You think?
3: Where is where are you seeing
2: it? Uh, no, no JS. Yeah. Top, oh, top frameworks. And
3: libraries. Well, it's kind of ubiquitous on the on the server side. Right. Yeah. That's part of the reason why JavaScript is so popular. Is is the symbiotic relationship with node.js right because node.js uses JavaScript
1: right, right, right and vice versa so interesting here in that same top frameworks libraries and developer tools so you have node.js as being used by 51.9 percent of respondents I think um dotnet and .NET core combined mm. that's a lot right so it's 35.9, 27.9. Mm-hmm. you know you're 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 talking like 60 something
3: 63
1: point8 yeah so it, it seems like a a little bit of a weird distinction to separate those two. Um, it's yeah. interesting that for the respondents here, that it, if they had been combined, they would be, uh, you know, .NET related ecosystem would be number one there.
3: Interesting that Cordova and Xamarin are that
1: high. Yeah.
2: Now, from our audience, we're looking at the the whether people are full time or independent or, or employed. Eighty two percent are full time employed developers. And that obviously doesn't cover the, the perspective for the mobile developer, but I think we started off this podcast back in twenty fourteen saying, you know, a lot of in, well, it was the beginning of the Indiepocalypse, apocalypse, right? So, true. Where yep. People are breaking away from being contractors or independents. So, hmm, mm-hmm. quite a low nine percent are roughly in that sort of bucket. Interesting stuff. Um let's see what else we got. Obviously the, the disparity between men and women continues.
1: Yeah. And the kinds of things they look for in a job, uh, granted, I'm guessing this is uh, pre-recession related problems that will probably change people's approaches for future surveys. But for this survey, men tended to be more concerned with regards to what languages, frameworks and technologies I'd be working with. And women tend to be more concerned with what is the office environment or company culture. So very, and languages falls down to like number three, whereas office environment and culture is number two for, for men. So it's definitely uh, different ordering of things.
3: But the top three are still the same for both.
1: Consistently top the top three, just in in, in
3: fact, Top five. I'm going yeah. back and forth now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, comparing yeah. what's what said is the same, right? Yeah,
3: top five. Which yeah. One are talking Interestingly about enough, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, diversity of the company organization is much higher of a concern for women than for men.
2: Mm. The salary one at the bottom is, I mean, the numbers to me seem low, but I guess it's oh, let's see. based on the average of work that people are doing, right?
3: Yeah, yeah but again it it's this is averaged over uh lots of different geographical regions with different- yeah. and different industries yeah but I would agree the numbers seem pretty low
2: yeah the mobile developers are really down down low in terms of it's almost not worth mentioning. <laughs>
3: Yeah, we know that's not, the not reality. Yeah. Well, maybe you know. Again, maybe on average, you know, there's a lot of like high school kids making not much money as a mobile developer. Yeah. you could you could argue maybe not high school, but you know, young people. Yeah, it's quite possible.
2: Yeah, it's interesting numbers. Oh, we've got. Can we flip back and forth between? They've got the buttons here, but I can't seem to switch. Can you guys switch? No, it, it seems the...
3: like they're just screenshots. They're static? of... Oh, of oh, they're static. Yeah, yeah, okay. the screenshots of a. Dynamic oh, there's thing. a back and forth here, right?
2: Yeah. Right. Oh, the salary's a lot different on this. Chart, as opposed to that—that that, um, I don't know what you call that, where the spread thing, the actual chart, are showing the. Uh worldwide versus USA, depending on the role, right? Like engineer, engineering manager, develop, mobile developer. I'm looking at the last, uh, last, I think it's the last chart on the, the page.
1: For the U.S. Right. wages or the global yeah, salaries?
2: US, U.S. I would think. I mean, the globals are pretty much, pretty much the same, but lower, obviously. <laughs> a lot. Cost of living has to be a factor, right?
1: It gets complicated because they're in these salaries generally talking only base salary, probably oh. not including bonuses, almost yeah, certainly not including right. uh, equity, equity. Right. Or stock awards and stuff like that, that that really make it different and you are talking about uh, a country that does not have universal health care versus many others in this right. survey that do um it might be controversial to say but i do think for outside the u.s folks if you're you know head of a government somewhere and you're like how do i stop all this brain drain to silicon valley let me tell you it's a very straightforward answer pay a lot more money to your people yeah. and they won't leave your country mm-hmm. <laughs> it's <laughs> as very simple as that i'm not saying it's easy i don't know where you're going to get the money that's up to you but but, uh, I've solved your problem. Yeah. Now here's my ten thousand dollar an Maybe hour consulting fee. have to look at consulting your stock cost
2: and figure it out from there. No, no, no response. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. All right, all right. That's enough for that survey. Um all right. So, Jaime, what do you got for us
1: in the world of Swift? Yeah, one of the main topics here is from the Swift.org folks. Uh, Tom Doron is the one who wrote this uh, this post on their blog that introduces the Swift AWS Lambda runtime. What does this mean? So, AWS is Amazon Web Services, and Lambda is their uh, serverless functions as a service um, right, offering. Yeah. The idea being you have something that doesn't exist until the exact moment at which somebody somewhere calls that API, it gets Instantiated, it does its job and then it stops existing. That's sort of the idea Mm -hmm. in a nutshell for folks who are not familiar. Um, And they tend to call this, um, you know, functions as a service because you're really writing a function that input comes in, output goes out and you can do other things if you wanted to do more sort of exotic uh, setups. Pretty good cases that people will use these for is um, let's say you have an an analytics service, really, hey, we have a lot of data that's going to come in at weird arbitrary times. We don't really want to have have uh, a server up and running all the time, necessarily. We want to be able to scale things separately just by spinning up different instances. This is where AWS Lambda really shines. Um, And what this article is about is that um, until fairly recently, you were fairly limited on the programming languages you could choose to write your Lambdas in. It usually was in Mm -hmm. uh, JavaScript. I think they added Go and Python, perhaps, to the base languages that AWS Lambda supported. But uh, some number. A of months ago, Amazon came out with this um, this runtime idea, and I don't know exactly what's involved, but apparently they gave up this tool to the community that could let people write their own uh, runtimes in different languages that could then run natively in Lambda. And this article is about the initiative to get Swift natively supported by AWS Lambda using this runtime. So this is pretty neat because one, it gives us you know Swift on the server uh, in a different sort of way folks might remember me talking about the equivalent form of this, that I used to have a couple conference talks related to IBM's uh, IBM Cloud's functions as a service. Um, Open I think it was called. Uh, Cloud Functions, I think they might have renamed it. And that supported Swift right out of the box, and that was nice. And they were pretty much the only provider who did. Now you could, because I hear people, you know, shaking their fists there in the background, um, you could use Swift in sort of a roundabout way in AWS Lambda before. Usually what that meant is people would get these tools that would package up their Swift program as an executable file and then bundle it as part of a Node.js JavaScript app. And the app was very thin. It would just fire up itself long enough to exec out to the command line and say, hey, run this Swift program, and that's that's not exactly the same. You're you're adding extra tools here, but in this case, there should be things that you more or less recognize, right? Your your input is codable, your output is codable, and you're getting uh, closures for handling, you know, whatever it is that comes in. You you want to calculate Celsius to Fahrenheit? You want to log analytics to some event storage? Cool, you can do sorts of things like that, and and many many more with this. It's open source. It is less than 1.0 version, and there are. Looking for contributors.
2: Does this mean that that if I have a script hanging around on a server somewhere and I want to do an insertion into a database or whatever, um, I my app could call or my yeah let's, call, let's say app could call the call the the endpoint and it would spin up this instance and then do the th- do the work and then just disappear again? Like I would have to wouldn't have to have like a microservice and mean in, in in between? Is that what that means
1: so close? So I, for fans of Rick and Morty, I tend to use the Mr. MeSeeks example. The idea from that show, for folks who who understand that reference, there's a special box with a button you could press. When you press it, a creature comes into existence called Mr. MeSeeks. It helps you with whatever task you asked it to do, and then it ceases to exist. It's very similar here for the, the Lambda serverless functions here, where nothing exists at all until a network request comes in that says, we need this particular function to do something. Server gets instantiated, runs your code, and then it's, ceases to exist once it has returned the response. In your case, you're right. You could imagine somebody writing something to um, from their app that says, hey, I would like to call, um, you know, hey, another person has voted yes on this particular feature. Cool. Function fires up. It logs the the data somewhere, like a database, and then it ceases to exist. I'm kind of hoping that Apple does will do something similar to this for um, Siri integration, particularly with things like HomePod, where I would like to Someday see them have this ability to run you know, functions, it's server-side Swift in Apple's infrastructure, right? I feel like that might be the happy medium between Apple having some measure of control of like not letting things go crazy, but then still being able to have, you know, the power of the cloud without having to go elsewhere for providers, such um, as Amazon here.
3: Yeah, so I think a good analogy, Tim, is imagine in Swift, now you would never do this, right? But imagine in Swift that you created a class. Oh, I might. <laughs> (laughs) Imagine that you create a class. And all this class is, it doesn't have any parameters or anything. It just has one method. And the method is called run this closure. And it takes one argument, okay. which is a closure, maybe a completion block. Uh, then somewhere else in your app, you have this closure that you just kind of want to run. Now, of course, in real life, you'd never do this. But but imagine the situation exists. Well, you could create an instance of your of your class, your run me class. You pass in a value, you pass in a closure as the argument to the run this closure Method and it runs it and then reports back when it's done and then the you then you throw away that the instance of that class and you're done. So what do you do? Well, you got something else to just do some work for you. You told it what work to do. It did the work, came back when it's done. Actually, you know, a, another kind of analogy to that is like think of like a a concurrent queue, right? You just pass or even a serial queue and just any kind of queue, dispatch queue of any type. You give it a closure, say, hey, run this closure for me and report back when you're done, uh, and it does, right? Um, uh, and and this is this is kind of like that except it's being run out in the cloud somewhere on some AWS server. So you just say, here, I've got some work I need to do. Hey, AWS, go go do this for me. Let me know when you're done." And it goes and does it, and it returns back. Does that make sense, or did that make it worse?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. I, I was just thinking, like from the point of view of like you know where we were five years ago or ten years ago, you know, you would have to you'd have to stand up a server, build an app that deals with a server, like it has you know hits a server in, in the middle point there does some work, stores. Yep. You know, stuff into a database, whatever. Yep. Maybe stores photos or whatever. Um, and to the cl- to the customer, they have to pay for that server to be sitting there waiting for clients to come and use it, right? And you know, in the perfect world, and and you know, everything goes well. You want you know, you want millions of servers to millions of clients to be hitting this all day long because you're you know, your app is super successful and you're you're making tons of money. But maybe in the real world, that you only get like you know, three or four hits. a uh, an hour, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, you know, the customer's paying for server to be stood up for all that time. When, in theory, we're using this sort of idea, they could have a, a service like a lambda ser- uh, scripts hanging around, waiting for the customers to come to the you know to the front door and sort of do their thing, and then
3: yeah. But the the big difference is that the scripts in this case aren't on the server at the beginning, right? So, so you're, in you're, fact, you're,
2: pass- you're passing the script up to the as part of the call. Is that the exactly?
3: Idea? Yeah, that's the closure you pass up. And, and that's right, the beauty okay. that's how the cloud has kind of revolutionized things because it used to be exactly as you said that yeah there'd be some physical server on there with some physical code with some code sitting on there just waiting for someone to or run even it. a
2: VM yeah but still yeah. Yeah, yeah right
3: but but yeah but now yeah now every, everything's virtual and and there might you know you might be sharing that physical machine with you know 10 other calls uh, and and that code doesn't have to sit there it doesn't have to be waiting for something it's just when when Whenever you make the network so you call... Pay,
2: you don't have to pay to store the server exactly. code.
3: Exactly. That's right. right. That's oh, right. Okay. That's gotcha. right. It'll never get hacked, never get stolen.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Beyond the, the billing part, which gets a little complicated because there is a threshold under which it's better to not have the server running. And then there's a threshold mm-hmm. at which uh, it's better to have server running. And then you sort of flip back the other way where it's better not to have server running. It really depends on sort of your use case and what your, your skill set and what you're willing to to deal with in terms of pain because pain uh, of managing servers is the part that goes away with something that's serverless like Lambda, right? So a really good example that people might remember is remember the Intel meltdown inspector bugs. And if you were running like a traditional uh, Amazon EC2 instance where they're, they're hosting your server and it's running all the time, at some point you had to shut down your server and then start it back up again with the patches, right? Of whatever the meltdown inspectors were. That essentially didn't exist from the serverless standpoint because except for that very narrow period of time where you had a vulnerable function while it was functioning, uh, no pun intended, um, as soon as Amazon had upgraded the Lambda system, all functions that were activated after that point um, were up to date with the security patches. You have given the responsibility off to Amazon to manage that for you. That's a big, big key part of the trying to understand is it worth it to go serverless or is it better to do traditional server? And uh, folks who have seen my my conference talk, you might remember that what I did was I had a cloud function in Swift that you would call it and it, it in turn would go make a network request to IBM Watson to ask the visual recognition system, hey, take a look at this picture of a person, tell me their age and gender and then return that response back to the caller. So there's, there's lots of cool stuff you can do here. It's exciting to see Swift be natively supported here. Um, and presumably if folks are interested in dabbling in how the runtime mechanism works, I assume you could make a Rust runtime or a Dart runtime or pick any of the other languages that we just stated from the developer survey. For folks in this show and, and listen to this show, I think the Swift one is probably the most convenient and interesting one for folks to check out. But when I was looking at the, the code in this blog, it's like, oh yeah, that looks that looks really familiar. It's squint, and it looks very similar to the kind of code I was writing for my uh, conference talk.
2: All Cool. Beans. All right. So, hmm, yeah. So the next uh, article I, I posted here, um, again, I think I kind of questioned the title of this post here because it uh, talks about Mac OS X 15.5 release um, with some powerful MacBook changes. Um, the lead that got me in here was kind of interesting. So I I've recently, I've downloaded this on onto one of my machines here. Um, and I'm, as you know, I'm a big fan of Carbon Copy Cloner when it comes to cloning machines, even though I think I might have mentioned a while ago that Apple kind of recommended that people don't use cloning to um, replicate machines anymore. I think that was as of High Sierra, and it had to do a lot with with this Apple file system that they've added, uh, APFS, they've they've added back into, into, um, I think it first showed up in High Sierra, but... um, so um, the creator of Mike Bombich, who's the creator of Bombich uh, Software, um, Carbon Copy Cloner, said that he dis- discovered some interesting things around um, using uh, around APF or, around sorry, but around uh, macOS ten fifteen dot five. Um, they're having issues with uh, security, like in terms of being able to create a bootable um, disk from uh, to, to run this. So um, some other interesting things too. We're, we're finding that some there's some I think Apple's turned up the security a bit on um on on uh, uh, this version of a macOS as well, um, though hopefully they fixed the. Uh, I think I might have talked about uh, the the FaceTime um, group calls were were kind of really bad. Um, they didn't have any kind of templates at all for them, um, and uh, it was really annoying when you're looking at it. Was sort of these heads would sort of float around, and they they would shrink and grow depending on who was talking. But it wasn't sort of in real time, and they fixed that. I noticed that because I, I was running that last week. Um, other, lots of you know sort of issues. Um, Minor issues in here.
1: You know, the battery management one is interesting, where it won't fully charge your your battery to help with the the battery life. So it's trying to be smarter about figuring out when do you truly need that hundred percent versus telling you yes, this is hundred percent at eighty five percent.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the, it started doing that on the phone too. Like I noticed that on the phones, my my phones aren't charging uh, right up right away. Like I, I charge my phone every night, and I notice that you know at a certain point it kind of just sits around, you know, and then and then sort of trickles overnight, I guess. Yes. <laughs> to get up to
1: 100%. So I got sort of something they brought over from MyOS. Yeah. And to iPadOS. help the battery life, you know, these discharging and charging cycles are, you know, they're painful for the battery if we looked at it that way. And, you know, each each cycle that you have and the way that you end up charging ends up stressing more or, or less. So what Apple's trying to do here is to, it's not nefarious. There's definitely folks who seem to think that it's some sort of weird thing they're trying to do. I do believe it is a function you can turn off if you don't want. Um, but it is trying to be smart about managing your battery and make it last longer over the lifetime of the device.
2: There's a few enterprise um, fixes here. Some things to do with uh, Microsoft Exchange um, not being able to use um, when they're when they're on a managed Mac, not being able to, to sign in um, as well. Uh, push notification services, uh, some proxy some pr- things changed in the proxies too. We've noticed some of those things too. Um, you know, Sleep wake issues. There's a lot of a lot of things we've seen over the over the years. So so anyway, just. Uh, I'd Definitely recommend scanning through this if you're uh, looking to update and thinking about whether you should do it or not.
1: I think for me, it might be about time for me to go update. Um, I hadn't since the pandemic had started and things had been locked down because couldn't go to an Apple store if everything went belly up. Um, Now I can, so I'm less afraid. Um, I think I am going to use my uh, Time Machine backup as a way to make myself feel better because people might remember. Mm -hmm. I don't exactly remember what happened with Carbon Copy Cloner, um, but I. I found an edge case where choosing a really, really old 2012 Mac, which was not yeah. an APFS. It was, you know, on, on, an, uh, was it a case sensitive or case insensitive? I don't remember which direction I went, but Mac OS on my new laptop got very unhappy that the carbon copy cloner was not in the right. Yeah. Format. I, I and recall
2: use case, case sensitive OS and yeah, that's not a good idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, like I had no idea. I didn't go fiddle with anything, but the time machine backup ended up helping me out there. So I, I think I might go that route. Yeah. before I update to uh,
2: 10.15.5. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think iOS is case-sensitive, but uh, which has been a problem for some of us in the past and developing. But, yeah, I think you want to keep your Mac loosey-goosey.
1: Yeah, I want to keep it up to date. I'm on 10.15.3, it looks like, so I skipped really? 10.15.4 because that was the middle of, oh, if this goes belly up, what are my options? Well, I can't actually get it into an Apple store to get fixed.
2: Yeah, what would they do at the Apple store, though? I'm curious about that. Wave a magic wand or something? it's or...
3: just a security blanket, really.
1: I mean it's at some point there's a like, Hey, help me, what in the world did I do? Oh, you just need a you know Oh, yeah. Solder a new EEPROM in there. Cool. That's good. Go <laughs> go do that. I don't I don't know what you're doing, man. I'm a software person. I'm not a hardware person. <laughs> well,
2: I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the real the real the only thing that scares me about these days about Macs is, uh, and I guess phones too, is that the the chip that is inside your Touch ID sensor um, is what you, is used. There's a key inside there that's used to encrypt your disk, right? So if something goes wrong with either the disk or the or the or the logic board, in most cases, in these new Macs. And and that T2 chip, um, yeah. Those, without that, you're you're kind of sunk. So I think I think you know, I think you and I both got burned when we moved to our new phones. That um, we were using encrypted backups, and because when we went to restore, we couldn't restore because we hadn't because we were using the wrong key, basically, to try and decrypt it. Right. So I think it was, the solution for us, in my case anyway, was to to do a unencrypted backup and then restore from that when I wanted to move to the new phone. Right. Yeah. So. Scary stuff. Back your stuff up, people. I keep saying this. You Nobody ever listens to me. Make sure you do backups and make sure you can restore from your backups.
3: I've been uh, backing up a lot lately because with all the heat and my old computer, oh, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just waiting for something to die here.
2: Well, yeah, and I think you probably heard the horror story from, from me last fall where um, my uh, – I don't know what happened, but I was – I think I had the lid closed, and I had maybe had my my laptop or my iPad on stop on top of the, the computer. Because when I got to back to my computer, it was super hot. And basically, I don't know if it was just time or whatever, but the the SSD drive was completely unresponsive and yeah, dead. Yeah, and so I think I think I cooked it. You know, yeah, so.
3: yeah. Yeah, My machine's gone on seven years old now. It's amazing, but
2: did I ever tell you guys a story about my GI Joes that I used to play with when I was a kid? Specific no. to this? No, <laughs> I've heard
1: about them, but not so, the same not reference. Well,
2: here here's 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 what happened to the life like the, the GI Joe with life like hair and bread. He was an astronaut, right? And I mean, I shaved his beard at one point with a razor blade. It was lots of fun. He the real chiseled look after I was done with them, if you can imagine. Um, but, yeah, I was I was sort of playing around with, you know, fireproof suits for my um, my G.I. Joe character doll, whatever, um, you know, and, and gasoline in the garage, as, as you do, right, and, you know, sort of thing. I thought, well, I'll get some aluminum foil, and I'll, and I'll make, like, you know, a fireproof suit for this guy. Yeah, right? yeah that'll work. <laughs> and then I'll light him on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, he melted. <laughs> Anyway, that's how they end. Then like he became
3: post-nuclear apocalypse Joe, G.I. <laughs> <G>. Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he
2: became the Horta from Star Star Wars, or from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. So Jaime, what's our next uh, next story? Tell us about the zero-day thing, and we're going to go back into this one again.
1: Yeah, this one is in line with something that we've said for a very long time on this show, and that is, do not roll your own security procedures. And that applies not only to indie developers, but apparently also to companies with uh, current or former trillion dollar market caps. Shouldn't roll your own security because bad things can and will happen. Alright, let me let me unpack this for you. So, what I've linked to that we'll have in the show notes for those of you driving at home is an article that was, in my opinion, a better write-up of what the problem was. Uh, this is Aaron Parecki who, uh, I think he works at Okta or, or Auth0. I can't remember which one he works for, but he's, he's involved with the OAuth and OpenID Connect uh, security standard folks. And folks might remember me talking about the show on the show um, that sign in with Apple's Sort of looked like OpenID Connect and OAuth, but not. It was subtly different in in weirdo ways. And mm-hmm. the OpenID Foundation wrote an open letter to Apple of Hey, it would be great if you addressed some of these discrepancies because it's it's really it's really strange to have something that's kind of like this standard, but is different in ways that were felt to be deficiencies, not just differences for for design reasons. So, uh, what happened at some point was um, Bhavik Jane, a uh, security researcher, I, I guess, uh, or at the very least, he found this bug with sign-in with Apple that uh, was pretty problematic, where you could hypothetically uh, get your account linked to somebody else's account, depending on on a couple of things that, that could happen, right? One part being um, a mistake in the implementation that Apple made, that it wasn't sort of properly dealing with uh, data. And then on the other side, if you as an app developer were being a little loose with what you were checking and verifying on the security credentials that you got from Apple, you may or may not have had a security problem there, right? And I read the the original article, uh, zero day in signed it with Apple by Vavik Chain, and I. S- sort of got how it worked. Um, I've been working a lot with OAuth and OpenID Connect um, over the last few months. Uh, it's complicated. I'm certainly not an expert by any means, but I really wasn't getting it. So that brings us to uh, this article, the real cause of the sign-in with Apple zero-day. And it broke it down in a way that I said, oh my gosh, these are horrible mistakes. I can't believe this is how the implementation works. So if you've seen the way that something like OAuth or OpenID Connect is intended to work, you are delegating to some uh, your app, as an example, is delegating to some other identity authority system. What does that mean? Well, here he shows some examples of like, hey, you know, my cool app would like to let you Jaime Lopez log in using your Google or Facebook account. And usually, you you get redirected over to the identity provider like Google or Facebook, or in this case, signed with Apple. You get some sort of consent form that says, hey, you know, my cool app would like to, you know, it'd like to to read your profile we would like to make posts on your behalf send letters to your grandma whatever the security scopes are you could generally get to choose those and then say yep that looks good so you have authenticated yourself with the identity provider like Google or Apple and then security credentials end up getting exchanged back with the the calling app like my cool app in this example um th- there's a different part to it beyond just delegating the authority there's also the identity part right so apps need to know who is this user and signing with Apple is attempting to do a security, you know, privacy conscious way of let's not give away too much information about the user. Folks might remember that signing with Apple, you can say, all right, well, yeah, I'd like to share my actual email um, with this app or I can instead use the, uh, the the fake email relay email addresses, right? Some weird random string at apple.com slash relay or whatever it is, right? Folks might remember how this relaying, works from a user yeah. standpoint. So there was two two different parts of the problem here. So apparently in the form that you are shown for, you know, do you want to create an account you with this you know, uh, what is he called? Avocado factory app uh, that you want to sign in with Apple on. And on that, the form says, you know, share my email, like aaron at parecki.com, as he has here in this example, or um, hide my email and have it be some other uh, Apple Relay email address, right? The problem was, uh, and he shows a, a simplified version of this, uh, this uh, website code, is that the Apple server was taking the literal value from the web page and saying, oh, okay okay, that's the email that they want to use. So if instead of uh, Aaron at Pariki.com, somebody said, hmm, what if I change that email address to be uh, tcook at apple.com, right? Or Jeff Bezos at amazon.com. Because Apple's server was taking in any value that it was provided for email and not verifying it against actual data that Apple knows about you related to your Apple ID, you could trick Apple's identity server into providing a valid token a valid set of credentials that claimed that, yes, Apple is asserting that this particular user has an email address of tcook at apple.com or Jeff Bezos at amazon.com. So now with third-party apps, if you were relying on those assertions from Apple's claims, you could get tricked into thinking, oh, well, instead of using what I should normally be using, I should be using the subject identifier from this set of credentials. That's what will uniquely identify that user, right? You don't, you don't get those more than once from signing with Apple. And I'll talk a little bit about the implications of that. But what it meant was that apps were sort of left and like, well, I need to identify this user. What's a reasonable way to identify this user? Oh, I guess email. That's that's always unique. Those never change, hmm. right? It's unique, yeah. So yep. y- you could end up having your account uh, being taken over because somebody else is like, yeah, I'm, I'm Cook at apple.com. I'm Mr. Tim Apples, right? So uh, yeah, that's me. And then the apps don't know. So it's, it's a double whammy of a flaw in the way that sign-in with Apple works from an implementation standpoint, right? He shows here that it shouldn't accept any old value for email address. It should say, look, it's either your real email address or a fake email address. And yeah, you can display to the user that, you know, fake email address is x zero one two three four five at privaterelay.apple.com. Cool. Uh, you shouldn't just accept um, uh, unsanitized data from clients, right? That's always like a big no-no. So that was, a big no-no there. The other part that was a double whammy was like you might hear people say, "Oh, when you use sign-in with Apple, because you get the identity information for the user once and only once, you're better off saving that information into the keychain until your full login signed-up thing works. Otherwise, you are hosed if like the network request dies when you're connecting to your own server, right? Like you can never ask again. You know what is the user information for this user? And that was the other part that deviates from the OpenID connects back where normally you can always ask, Hey, I've got this Token, this set of credentials. Think of it like a driver's license or passport. This this user is claiming to to be somebody. Who are they? Give me more information about them. Uh, I think Apple, in in an attempt to try to make this privacy conscious, sort of wrapped itself in, in around the axle and like made it more likely for this sort of bug to happen. Right, and so that's why going back to the beginning of when I started this this little monologue, you really shouldn't roll your own security because OAuth and OpenID Connect have been around for a long time and there are flaws in them even as is that have mitigations, right? There are security best practices that people add on top of the official specs and there are newer specs coming out to um, reduce the attack surface. So in this case, sign of the Apple said like, yeah, that's pretty good, but we're going to change this in subtle ways. Wasn't really a good idea, right? Because um, it ended up exposing some other flaws. Um, Looks like it's taken care of. Uh, Apple paid out the print sum of one hundred thousand dollars to mr Jane uh, for this bounty and uh, seems like it's fixed now so pray. make sure uh, make sure if you're an indie developer out there using sign with Apple make sure you use that subject identifier information for the user and don't use the uh, don't use the email to uniquely identify a person because you end up getting in trouble mm, interesting yeah it, it from an analogy standpoint what it really works down to is it's as if I was able to convince the person at the, uh, the local driver's license office, the DMV or DPS, like, yes, I am Mr. Tim Cook. Please give me, and this is my address, you know, right. one infinity loop or sorry, one infinite loop, you know, in uh, Cupertino, California, please give me a driver's license that, that makes that claim. And if you did convince them, then I could go around to, uh, to other places and they say, well, please identify yourself, sir. Oh, we'll see, as you can see here, there's this official government document here that says I'm, in fact, Tim Cook. Um, and, that, and that's mm. not the case. It's a rough one. It's a rough one. There was a lot to untangle, and even when I read the, the first article uh, from the bug bounty, I, I didn't really get I'm like, wait, what What do you mean I can just send an email and, and take over another account? And then when I read Mr. Perikis' you know, writing of how this deviated from the normal standard, I said, oh, oh, yeah, I can see why that would be an issue, because you are able to fool the system into giving you signed, verified credentials from a very well-known, trusted provider like Apple and now you have mm. third-party app developers who are sort of stuck in a bind where they they want to know information about the user but they don't have as much as they would normally have so they end up using what appears to be the easiest you know bit of information that you could reliably get you get email and it turns out that ended up exposing a security flaw
2: Crazy. So was this the guy who got the bounty or
1: <laughs> no uh, Aaron Parecki was not oh, a security
2: a, researcher I a, see security, I,
1: yeah. security researcher uh, Bafik Jane I think when I looked at the the about on the the link uh, bounty article, cool. Oh yeah, about Jane. Yeah, interesting. What was the last bit about JWT though?
2: Was that so? Sort of just another way to do the same thing, or
1: what he was showing is um, JWTs are JSON. Web tokens, yeah, web tokens. So it's yeah. a it's a format for the security credentials. You can think of right. it as F- they, having
2: they're just quickly, easily, easily decoded. Is that the idea here?
1: Uh, it is nice. So so JWTs end up having a couple of nice things. So they're I believe base sixty four encoded to yeah. make it a little bit more compact. So they always look a very particular way with that uh, eyj prefix and then a whole bunch of a soup of letters and then a period and another soup of letters and a period. I forget how the structure works, but what you supposed to do is read parts of that, turn it into, into, um, JSON as an example. So you can read what it is. And then part of that token is the cryptographically signed, um, data that says here is how you can verify that this information has not been tampered with. Right. So, so that's why you as a third party developer using sign in with Apple, you could check like, all right, so I got this token, this set of credentials in the form of of a JWT and, I checked the signature and this is legitimately a a JSON web token that has been signed and verified by Apple. Uh, Very similar to... The metaphor I made of like, well, if I were to you know shine the little black light on your driver's license, I'd be like, oh, this this is legitimately a state of California driver's license, and it says Mr. Tim Cook on there. Um, I guess this must be the correct person, right? It's kind of <laughs> silly. It doesn't work as a true metaphor because I, I think you know people at the uh, the Apple facility would not be convinced, even if my the picture on the driver's license looked like my face. It's like you're not Tim Cook. Who the hell are you? <laughs> Get out of here. We know you're not. You uh, tim right because in the real world we can use other mechanisms to to verify like do we think this is the right person or not right like you can use your own eyes and your own knowledge um, but in computer systems it's it's not quite so simple
2: yeah it's a complex problem sure all right i guess we're we're there um shall we uh dig into our picks. Sure. Yeah. Dig. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this is a sort of follow-up on, what would you call it, the fecal transplant? Is that what you called it?
1: The fecal transplant method for getting the uh, the simulators you want put into a version of Xcode that normally wouldn't support it.
2: Yeah, and supporting devices that are newer than your current version of Xcode. Um, what uh, what you can do is you can, I think we've talked about this before, you can add device support into your actual Xcode by grabbing device support from a newer version of Xcode and mm-hmm. placing it inside strategically. Inside of the uh, inside of your current Xcode, um, what we've discovered though is that um, sometimes in this, uh, we're not sure if this is related, but probably is. Um, some of the new device, new phones have the ARM 64 E chip, and it may be related or not. But when you go to t- attach a, f- a phone to your Xcode, uh, and you want to do a build to it, one of the things it does is it looks at the phone and it grabs some um, uh, dynamic libraries, dlibs, from from the from the phone and. And it know, then then Xcode knows how to how to you know talk to the phone and how to how to write uh, transfer the code over to it. Um, but what's been happening lately, and especially when we're, we're playing around with our Xcodes, is uh, we come across a situation where you get an error. Like the the build will run, and as soon as you as soon as it starts installing onto the phone, it's either will start to install on the phone, or just when it's about to start running the app, uh, the app will crash on the phone. And uh, so we dug into this a bit and. Uh, Later versions of Xcode, like currently, I think uh, Xcode 11, maybe Xcode 10, will tell you this. Um, you'll get an, an error saying D, uh, "dyld shared cache extract dlibs failed." Right, and what that's saying is that the message there is that the 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 f- your current Xcode was na- not able to extract the dynamic libraries from from your phone. Um, and so we were we were trying to figure this out because it started happening on our new iPhone 11 Pros and that kind of stuff. Stuff and we were trying to build a couple of months ago before you know we all had to go in lockdown. And uh, I discovered uh, online that there's a way you can go into your um, library application support or probably developer and place a file in there that and just put period processed and then underscore delib uh, shared cache whatever. So I forget what the actual message is because the reason I'm skipping over that is I found a better way to do it today. And um, so and that dot you know. Prefix it with a dot, and then uh, basically it's an invisible file to the file system. That was fooling xcode into thinking, well, you've already imported the stuff, so here let me just build the, the to the to the device. Well, that that worked, and we're not sure why, but we were able to fool xcode by doing that. But today, I found it. There was a video. We came across this uh, situation today, and I found a video online from actually 2018, so it's not a new problem. Um, and basically, what you can do is when you when you see this error. In Xcode, and when you go to Devices and Simulator window, and you'll see this yellow banner with this you know DYLD shared underscore cache underscore extract dlibs failed. Then um, you can select the phone in in the sidebar there, and you can remove it, or or you can right click on it and say unpair. And uh, immediately the phone will go, hey, do you want to trust this computer? You know that trust button that we you have to hit when you first attach a, f- a new device to a to a new Macintosh. For Xcode, um, ignore that trust for a minute uh, and then manually go in click plus to add the phone and then um, when you select the phone that you want to import it, it will ask you again if you want to trust it. At that point in time Xcode has sort of made a connection to the trusting part of the, the whole process and it will man- it'll manage to import the uh, the DLibs properly and uh, that, that will succeed. I'll put some screenshots, maybe I'll make a blog post out of this but just a, sort of a little heads up there if you run across this, this uh, particular um, uh, inability to build to a device and you're, and you're app crashes. So just a bit of of a fix you up there for for those of you doing the fecal transport style of development. And that's it for me.
1: I mean, you got something? Yeah, my pick is by uh, Jeff Wong, who's an assistant professor in computer science at Brown University. And his Mm -hmm. blog post is entitled, My Productivity App for the Past 12 Years Has Been a Single Text File .txt File. And he's got an interesting way of doing things that I I ended up adapting to my own sort of needs where he keeps all his notes in to-do items and sort of thoughts uh, in a regularized format in this text file. So it makes it very right. easy for him to know what did he do yesterday? What is he supposed to do today? And tomorrow he knows whether huh. he actually got any of that done and he can look back at meeting notes. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I talked to Bob and Sally about this topic. When did I do that? It's not in some, you know, Barrett set of systems. It's not a a fancy pants uh, database. There's definitely tons of solutions that people will use for these things. Just a a simple Mm -hmm. text file is what he's using. And In my case, I end up using, um, because VS Code has a really good set of uh, built-in markdown capabilities and I've added a few plugins that make life a little easier. I use a single, well, uh, two single markdown files for stuff. I have sort of a scratch pad thing that I use for snippets of things that I tend to use a lot or sort of as a working space when I'm trying to figure something out. And I have uh, a text file that's a markdown file that's a little bit more similar to what he's got here where I've got, you know, here are the things that I need to do. Here are the things that I've done. Here's uh, different sets of projects that I'm working on where here's the big picture items that I need to worry about. Um, and I move things, you know, sort of down the list into an archived section. That's sort of the, hmm. the you know, the uh, arc of the covenants and the big warehouse sort of thing of like, Someday, should I ever need this content? I can just do, uh, was it command F to do a search and find, you know, when did I talk to somebody about OAuth? Um, what was it that I did related to this documentation page? And it's pretty easy to find. It surprisingly ends up being by far the best solution compared to a ton of different um, third party apps and et cetera that I've tried over the years of my career. Um, for folks who are wondering, but what does he do for backing things up? Uh, this is on my 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 work laptop i end up just every once in a while dumping this into um uh google drive and that's my my poor man's backup so at worst i only lose like a day's worth of content i'm sure if we had maybe a different setup i'd have like a Dropbox you know syncing things or something i might end up doing that on my own personal machine because i do have a pretty nice dropbox setup just thought it was interesting as an idea it definitely proved it out in my my own personal usage patterns not saying it's for everybody but if you've been wondering how can I manage uh, information in my life, you know, related to tasks and to dos and etc. Might want to give this a shot and, and see.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting way of doing it. Like, I mean, I used to have a, I used to actually have an envelope with uh, or a piece of paper with a bunch of to do things written on it back in the pre computer days. But um, yeah, I, I use BB Edit the same way. I mean, I have uh, I snippets. I have one big document that has a whole bunch of snippets of code, and it's got like you know the my company colors in there so I can, you know, readily quickly pick it up. But yeah, this is an interesting idea. I do use Notes this way now, right? I I do as well, um, yeah. Yeah, so I I, I use Notes and and, uh, what I like about Notes now is they finally figured out the sync so you know, I can start a Note on my my Mac and I can finish it on my iPad or my iPhone and I've, I've always got it handy for me, right? So... Throughout the week when I'm traveling around, or when I was traveling around, um, I could keep track of things that way. But yeah, this is an interesting kind of style of, uh, I guess, the, the, it's just like a running diary of, of uh, things that he's done, right? Is that the idea? Like he puts a date at the top and, um, formats it in certain ways, right?
1: Yeah. So like in my example, I have uh, a section for here are things I need to talk about with my manager or my manager's manager, right? Like here are you know, more uh, tactical items and here are more strategic items. I also have a section for here's my normal to-do list, which has uh, a section for items that are complete. And, and I usually only leave them incomplete for like a day or so until I make sure I, you know, finish whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing where I feel like, all right, I don't need to worry about this anymore. Um, I've got a work in progress part of that. So when I'm working on an item on my to-do list, I move it into work in progress and I can move it to complete, or I can move it back down to the to-do section. In the to-do section, I actually found that it was helpful for me to have a, uh, here are lower priority or lower urgency things. Here's a section for here are things that are higher priority. And then I really found that I needed an in-between state called on-deck, sort of taking the the baseball metaphor, right? So the the batter is batting currently, but the person on deck is, you know, out there taking practice swings, getting ready for their next turn. So that's the way I've separated it out. It's worked pretty well for me. Uh, It has evolved. It was much more simply to do, doing, done. And then I started adding different sections for, all right, this is how I want to separate and manage things. And it's just a text file. So it's it's pretty, pretty flexible. Um, I could have used a whole bunch of different third party tools out there that try to do stuff. Couldn't find anything that met a lot of needs of like no i didn't want to go requisition some sort of software license from it you know didn't have the the setup that i would normally have on my own personal laptop right because i could just go you know download whatever open source tool i want i can go install uh buy whatever for my own stuff it's a little different when you're using a a corporate managed device right sort of like you know how can i get the most return on investment from the least amount of pain? and very critically not um not leak important information because a lot of times I write uh, customer information in there, right? And so I want to make sure I'm only putting into uh, managed stuff we have like our managed Google Drive or managed uh, Microsoft OneDrive. Right. So
2: friend of the show, Gene Goikman, showed me a few years ago that he was using OneNote from Microsoft. And I haven't really had an Office 365 account until I guess we started using it about, I guess we've been on about six or eight months now at the the big corporation. And so, um, and I used to have, I've, I've had, Going back until the dawn of time, journals where I would actually write things down in, in pencil in a book and you know, like a moleskin kind of book or field note kind of book. And um, late, so, in the last six months or so, I started using uh, OneNote, and um, which is kind of weird because it, it, it's really hard to sort of you can't sort things by date or whatever. Or at least, I've not figured out how to do that yet. But I did, I, I actually went online and did a course the other day on mastering OneNote because it's, it's once you get a ton of things in there, it's kind of tough to find things, but uh, you can take tag notes in that as well. But what, again, because we can't use uh, Apple notes in on our corporate machines and, and reliably have it sync, at least we now have OneDrive for, for Microsoft. And so I've been sticking all my documents in OneDrive and that way I can access them from multiple places in the same way that we would kind of use iCloud, right? Um, yeah. So it's it's uh, interesting. I mean, <laughs> it's surprising that this is still a challenge for people in terms of how to, how to properly keep track of things. I'm sure people are shaking their fists at, at the, podcast right now thinking, oh, I use Evernote and I, you know, I used Evernote for a while and then Dropbox for a while and, and, you know, as, as, um, Applications scaled all these sort of services that used to be free or relatively free are now you know limiting what what access you have. It seems only Apple and Microsoft seem to be having sort of this um, endless run of, of capabilities, right? So, Mark, how do you use? You said you're using Notes for
3: yeah. I, I tend right? to use I don't, I don't use them as in any long term way, but I tend to just keep keep some notes for you know a day or two, uh, and then and then start creating a new one. And sometimes I will delete them when I'm done, but sometimes Sometimes I'll keep them around so I was just looking at it I have some old ones there and you know sometimes I don't even remember what I was talking about in the, in the note uh, but but usually I keep it because there's a reason for it so yeah so it's I can't say I have a continuous stream of notes going back like this guy does but uh, you know but I but I but I keep track of of related time related things over some you know certain amount of period of time that varies uh, in a single note and then I'll move on to a new one
2: yeah I've been using notes for since I had a phone so I think I have such mm-hmm. stuff going back all the way back to 2010. Oh, I finally... Figured. You know what? I have a hard time... I don't know if you've got these, this new scrolling thing in, in um, on the phone where you you grab the slider on the side and scroll all the way down. You know what I mean? Like like you get the little slidey indicator there and you can... The scroll you can bar? Catch it with your finger. Yeah. Yeah. Scroll bar thingy. Um, anyway, I've got notes going all the way back to August 22nd, 2010 on my phone. So it's a long time. And I can, yeah, and I can click, to the, click on the top of the menu bar there and get it to all come back up to the top. Yep. Super duper complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. So I guess for now, Mark is going to surprise us yeah. all with a pick. You have a for pick. This week.
3: Yeah. So uh, longtime listeners to the show will know that we often talk about this ancient language called Fortran that's been around for at least 50 years. Uh, it used to be one of the top languages. You know, if, if there was a Stack Overflow survey back in 1964, it probably would be number one or number two. Uh, but that mm-hmm. didn't exist. Anyway, so Fortran was a, was a language that was used for mostly for doing Mathematical calculations, numerical stuff, uh, and it's actually still around to this day. We've talked about this a few times, so you know I know after listening to us talk about it all the time, everyone's raring to go to learn learn them some Fortran. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so when I stumbled upon this thing, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. I thought I'd share it. Uh, Manning Publications, one of the one of the book publishers, uh, they've published an actual book called uh, "Modern Fortran: Building Efficient Parallel Applications" uh, by uh, uh, meteorologist, oceanographer, and Fortran programmer Milan Cercic. Uh and it's, a, and it's a regular full-length book that I, that I full disclosure, I have not looked at. However, they also have kind of a sneak preview version of it for free, which is just a few chapters, uh, and it's oh, okay. called "Exploring Modern Fortran Basics." And it's not very long; it's only about fifty pages, but it's sort of a tutorial about how to get started and 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 you know writing your first little short little Fortran program. And it's sort of a tutorial, and it's kind of just hmm. a fun little read. You know, it won't take you long. Um, You know, maybe take an hour or two, depending on how quickly you go through this or if you like to type it all in. Uh, And uh, it'll just give you a flavor for what the language is all about and see if you decide that you want to give up mobile development and go do some uh, meteorological modeling, uh, you know, uh, uh, modeling Mm -hmm. weather systems. Well, you need Fortran for that. So there you go. Exploring Modern Fortran Basics by Unsearching.
2: A number of free books on the side there, too. There's Understanding Deep Learning and Mm -hmm. Agile for microservices and stuff like that. So interesting. I don't know why they would choose these. I guess get you get the foot in the door as it
3: were. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's basically this is, the, this is the light version of all these books, right? You get the light version for free and you get hooked. And then the idea is they hope you're going to buy the actual book and maybe, well, if it's a good book. So this particular one has three chapters. Part one is getting started, minimal working app. Part two, exploring data, writing reusable code with functions and subroutines. Part three, organizing your Fortran code using modules. So, you know, it's not a, it's not an advanced book. It's definitely a beginner book. Uh, but if you're interested in the language, finding out more about it, that's a good place to start.
1: Folks might remember uh, at some point, I think I had a shadow pick or maybe a real pick that uh, was Fortran.io. That was mm-hmm. a, an MVC web stack written in Fortran 90. That you write a, a web server stuff with that. But then I looked up on Wikipedia and Fortran 90 is old news, let me tell you, because although Fortran first appeared in 1957, right? So that's, uh, 63 years ago, uh, it has had Quite the interesting history. When Fortran, Fortran two, Fortran three, IBM one hundred and forty, Fortran, Fortran four, and then they went to years and Fortran sixty six, Fortran seventy seven, Fortran ninety, Fortran ninety five, and then there's two thousand three, two thousand eight, and the most recent is two thousand eighteen. Uh-huh. Fortran two thousand eighteen is what all the cool kids are using. Is it? Do you know what version they were using in this particular one? Because that's that's interesting. I didn't realize there were all these different. Uh, in this
3: particular book, uh, I don't know. Let me see. He mentions fortran 2018 in the introduction so presumably he's using the latest yeah he doesn't specifically say as far as i can tell but since he mentions the latest in the in the uh then i'm gonna go with that that's,
1: that's cool i wonder how far right. away we are from from swift and going away from version numbers to years mm. are you guys using swift 2022 yeah that's that's what <laughs> you're gonna ask <laughs> yeah it's coming
2: I guess that's it for another week. So, Hey, hi, if people want to get in touch with you. How would they do that? I'm on Twitter is at dev with the hair. All right. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you,
3: I'm at Mark at snapsoft.com.
2: All right. My name is Timitra T I M M I T R A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So until next time, we'll say bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye. This has been another episode of the more than just code podcast. This is Mike Van Ogmans, MTJC's favorite voiceover artist for some reason. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter facebook and instagram we'd love to hear from you so use the hashtag #AskMTJC. once again the podcast twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc thanks again for listening we'll see you next time
2: All righty then. My uh, MS Teams has been flying off the hook here because a couple of guys are working late and solving problems that we've been having. So notifications, notifications for Microsoft—they don't—they don't tend to ignore them all <laughs> that well, right?
3: Yeah, I still have but. to do a. Uh a build
2: tonight. So I've been playing around with uh, Android a bit more this week, finding out there are a lot of bad, bad uh, blog posts on using Android, <laughs> doing writing for Android. So it's How funny. Are you
3: running Kotlin or Java or Java?
2: Yeah, Kotlin. Kotlin. Kotlin yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you it's like very it? Very close to. Uh, it's very. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's very close to um, Swift. to um, Swift. Yeah. And what's funny though is um, it's a weird thing about. I, I remember this about um, writing Android back in the day was you would you would write something like you write a. You you'd call a a class or a function or whatever you'd you'd use like a framework kind of thing and then um you'd get an error and you'd click on the error and it would automatically import the the you know like you know how we have to do the imports of of frameworks and stuff like that like core library or core data or whatever it is you're you're bringing into your into your class right it does that automatically and and now it actually does it um like as you start typing out the stuff so it's kind of a weird way of learning learning their style of 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 sort of code completion if you will Like you you start typing out, you know, what, what, what function you want to use. So rather than going into the top of the file and have to do an import and then, you know, going and writing it, or, or in our case, we write in Swift and then we'll get an error. We have to go back up. Oh yeah, I got to import that thing that I, Swift UI or foundation or whatever it is. Right. Um, it kind of, it kind of does that sort of automatically, which is, which is a bit strange, you know, it's kind of like, there's a sort of hidden knowledge that people who are experienced at Android, you know, already know how to just, you know, just rattle off, you know, what you need to do, right? So, yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's it's weird that way. It's funny that that the day I was, I was going back to my project and it had been a day or so since I used it. I'm like, oh, I got to get back onto that that thing. So and so I just I reached over, reached up for Xcode, started fired up Xcode, mm. and then I and all of a sudden I wanted to install a bunch of things. I'm like, wait a minute, what did I not run this version of Xcode before? And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm running an Android, <laughs> yeah. so it's not actually running an Xcode. It should be running an Android Studio. So that took me a minute to. Get my head screwed back on right again. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm mean, I you know just trying to get this one little one little app built and hitting hitting roadblocks in terms of you know having to learn this and that. It's a bit a bit of yak shaving involved, right? So where you know you kind of wonder should I be doing this or not? <laughs> but it's you know keeping me entertained during the pandemic.
1: It's an interesting time because there are some resources from familiar places you would know. Like Ray Renderlich has a whole lot more yeah. Android content. I think Sam Davies has a whole bunch of uh, articles related to Android development. I haven't followed along, but there's a there's a transitioning happening where they've they've got the jetpack compose stuff and live data and a whole bunch of mm-hmm. if you squint you can see that these are equivalent to like Swift UI and Combine and and even more on top of of things and it's, I think those are all still yeah. in beta so you're you're kind of in a weird spot where should you learn the older way of doing it or should you mm-hmm. be on the bleeding edge and and be that much better prepared for the future but then having to deal with the the bleeding part of Bleeding Edge.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, like, in the same sense that we have sort of the uh, interoperability between Objective-C and Swift, you know, and and all the foundation stuff in UIKit, um, they have the same thing with Java. I mean, like, even though you're writing in in Kotlin, I think a lot of the base classes are still written in Java, so when you import things, and you have to refer to things that way, too. So there's a lot of parallels in that sense in, in the way that things work that way. So, but, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, it was interesting that you mentioned Ray winter like i went to I went to look up a particular subject I wanted to learn a bit more about how Android does networking and look at retrofit, which is their their equivalent of sort of an a f networking kind of deal right um, but so I found a course on it, but it was from twenty eighteen and and of course you know i try, and I, you know it's funny you meant you sent me a link uh, on Twitter last week saying you know android studio four is out i 'm like oh i'm like well i'm, like, well, I'm going to stick with three, whatever it is I was running at the time and I'll just you know because I because I'd gotten familiar with it. I didn't want to get into the whole headache of of upscaling my tool right uh, in the middle of this whole thing. And I didn't realize that Android Studio actually it must somehow magically auto update because I went to run the, this tutorial from like a down, the way they teach there is that you download a, a base project and then they teach you a particular uh, part of it as opposed to starting from scratch every time right. And so you download their sample project and you pick up from where the story takes starts off. From from, right. The problem was the older code was written for for um, Android 27 or whatever. I don't know how they do their numbering, but the current one is 29. And as an example, and I had to go through and fix the project before I could run it. You know, like I had to go through and change the dependencies and get the right version of Gradle in there and all that kind of stuff. And then stumbled across the fact that somehow my Android Studio had upgraded automatically updated itself to 4.0. So um, yeah. So the, for those of you out there yelling at the phone, you know, let me know what 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 I'm doing wrong but or how I can turn that off because I, I certainly didn't want to do that. But I, I you know I you know feather my, or pat myself on the back. I did manage to spend like half an hour fix up the Java dependencies and Gradle dependencies and stuff like that and and was able to get the, the sample project from the start up and running. Um, and, uh, now I'm, I'm cooking with gas, just working away on the, working my way through the, 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 it's a basic, it's a, a course on, on networking, as I said, I, mench- I think I mentioned, right? Yeah. So that's fun. Interesting to sort of stretch, uh, you know, your knowledge,
0: just another, another language to learn.